The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And as I've shared with you in the past, I must be crazy because I went to law school a very long time such that I have three law degrees, including a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I'm both a master of the laws of taxation and a master of the laws of intellectual property. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities that I was exposed to when I was a youngster, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. Now, I also practice some related fields in my overall financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. And with these areas of law as my reference points, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the last 40 years, or nearly the last 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I grew up as a military brat and will always be one, and I also helped create another one with my former spouse, who was also in the military. As such, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And as I've shared with you many times, I was raised by a father who, who taught me to give back to my community and our society as a whole the way he had done as a soldier and then as a business person after he separated. And on top of that, I had the great fortune to get to know and spend a lot of time with and actually became great friends with both my maternal and paternal grandmothers, both of whom survived the four great economic challenges of the last century, including the Great Depression, World War II, and the systemic racism and misogyny that unfortunately continues through into our society today. And as these women help raise me and they always showered me with love and affection and shared with me the stories of their grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South. As such, it's out of my great love and respect for these women who are always with me in spirit, urging me on, 
along with my lay father, that when the situation is right, I am sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors and the disabled who find themselves more and more, not only the targets of, but unfortunately the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and elder financial abuse that you could ever imagine that seems to be running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law uh, related to your money. And even if you don't have a whole lot of it or you don't have enough of it, your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your family's or your small businesses, financial health, wealth and money related well-being, as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, as always, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that you will need in order to help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I sincerely believe you need if you have a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets, but especially your debt. Well, you know, the hits just keep on coming week after week. First, the Supreme Court of the United States put an end to affirmative action in higher education in both public and private institutions of higher learning. In the case, Students for Fair Admission, Inc. versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College and a companion case, the University of North Carolina. And... Coming soon to a workplace near you, if it already hasn't arrived, will be the end of even the sham, illusory, half-hearted attempt at diversity and inclusion in the workplace, including the area that I work in, a law. Now, for those of you not in the know, Someone who I highly regard as a reputable source of information forwarded to me a copy of a letter dated July 13, 2023, and it was a warning letter sent by 13 state attorney generals to all the Fortune 100 companies demanding that they immediately cease and desist their diversity, inclusion, uh, equity programs under threat of legal action from these 13 state attorney generals. And another reputable source made the observation that most of these 13 states resisted Brown versus the Board of Education for nearly two generations, but somehow they are able to enforce the Harvard University of North Carolina case although they exaggerated in their letter uh, what its holding was, but they're able to be up and running and ready to sue in less than two weeks. Well, this week we can add to our collection of very bad public policy, the state of Florida's Board of Education newly minted guideline for the instruction of its K through 12 students pertaining to how black history will be taught in that jurisdiction, including instructions on revisionist view of slavery um, that basically states that slavery was useful to slaves and that it taught them some new skills. 
you know, this is reminiscent of something that happened to me when I was in the sixth grade. Now, I went to some very excellent schools. uh, And when I was in uh, the third through the sixth grade, my mom had an opportunity when I was in the third grade to go to Alaska and work uh, for the Department of Interior. And so we were a family of four because um, um, my folks had split up when I was in kindergarten and um, my mother and her mother and my older brother and I, we relocated to San Francisco where I went to some really great schools. And then, like I said, when I was in the third grade, my mother had an opportunity to move to Alaska and work for the Department of Interior. And so she and my grand decided that I would go with her because uh, Alaska had really good schools and my brother would stay um, in uh, San Francisco with our grandmother until he finished up and then he would come and stay with us in uh, Alaska. So um, I uh, in this was in the sixth grade and there was a, um, a class was we were uh, going to discuss slavery. And I was kind of, you know, anticipating, looking forward to it, to hear what my instructor said was happening to black folks uh, during slavery period. Um, now, she was a great instructor. And so I was just sure that she was going to enlighten us all including me being the only black person in the class. But, you know, the teacher informed me and the rest of my class that most slaves were happy and content with being slaves because their masters were very nice to them and saved them from the terrible plight of being uneducated individuals in the jungles of Africa. Well, as you can imagine, <laughs> the 11-year-old version of me is, was not much different than the 68-year-old version of me today. And so, as you can imagine, um, that statement did not go over very well with me. And I challenged the teacher that she needed to read up on what slavery is about. And if she didn't, couldn't find a book, she needed to talk to somebody who knew it. And I make that same admonition today to the state of Florida and to us all. You know, my research has revealed that this cavalier attitude about blacks, coupled with the fact that many, if not most black students are tracked into low level achievement classes in school due to a variety of factors, including the negative effects of racial segregation, historical and social context of racial discrimination in education and the impact of teachers such as my great, otherwise great sixth grade teacher that had been misinformed about the trials and tribulations of being somebody's property and not even having the ability to control your own reproductive process if you were an African uh, woman. So, Uh, I'm going to ask you a question about what we can do about it when we come back. But first, we're going to take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. 
Welcome back to Selwyn's Law. Before the break, I said I'd have a question for you all, and here it is. You know, if it truly takes a village to raise a child, this especially so in our black and brown communities, are the adults in the villages that make up our collective communities here in California, in Florida, and out throughout the United States, individually and collectively guilty of malpractice and intellectual child abuse by neglect. The malpractice and child abuse by neglect I'm talking about is that which is manifest by the poor education most of our young people receive today. That, in my opinion, is a direct result of our, the adults in our villages, not standing up to and demanding more from our federal, state, and local governments to completely and competently educate our children and grandchildren in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, not to mention the baseline fundamental requirements of competence in logic, the arts, world history, civics, economics, and the law, that our children and grandchildren need to survive and even thrive in the 21st century and beyond. I ask this question because I've come to recognize that there are several danger signs, red flags that are not on the horizon anymore. They're staring us in the face that is coming to focus that as a result of the convergence of business politics, finance, and ethics, or the lack of ethics, that have come to the fore because of the use of new technology that we see, hear, and read about each and every day in the news. These new technology, namely artificial intelligence, automation, the Internet of Things, blockchain, or disruptive ledger deployments and the harvesting and uh, manipulation of big data technologies that will forever change the nature of work in our society and therefore access to the monetary resources that we all need to sustain and maintain our future villages, monetary resources that are rapidly moving farther and farther away and out of reach of our children and grandchildren simply because they're not receiving the education they need to understand, let alone harness and control these top technologies for the benefit of our villages and our society as a whole. Now, let me be clear. I went back to an early version of a report. It was dated January 24, 2019. It was entitled Automation and Artificial Intelligence, How Machines Are Affecting People, Places, and it was produced by the Brookings Institute. And it stated, the gravest disruption from automation is in the coming decade will affect men, young workers, and underrepresented groups, black and brown people and women. There is finally one more compelling set of variables in the way of automation that may affect society and our economy as a whole. 
These variations reflect the fact that just as automation's desperate impact are going to pressure uh, particular jobs, industries, and places in different ways, they are also going to affect the demographic groups unequally, unequally and unevenly. In this respect, the sharp segmentation of labor by gender, age, and racial ethnic identity ensures that some demographic groups are likely to bear more of the burden of adjusting to AI than will others. The probable divides are sharp. Men, young workers, and people of color, especially black and brown people. They appear likely to face a significantly more acute challenge from automation and AI in its next phase than do white women, prime age workers, and whites in general. Now, equally sharp is a variation uh, is forecasted in automation's inroads that Various racial and ethnic groups will face a much harder or harsher challenge than the rest. Hispanic and black workers, for example, face average current task automation potential of 47 percent for Hispanics and 44 percent of blacks for their jobs. Figures well above those likely to impact whites in general, 40 percent and Asians, 39 percent. So what this means in plain English is Hispanic workers, 47 percent, about half of Hispanic workers jobs are such that they could be automated. They're so repetitive without um, a lot of cognitive requirements behind them. So that means that half of the jobs will go away. The numbers are slightly less for blacks at 44 percent, less for whites and down to 40%, so that means 60% of them will be able to maintain their jobs. And Asians, it it says 39%, so that means 61% will be able to maintain their jobs. So it's going to really impact Hispanic and Black workers. Now, underlying these differences is the stark over and underrepresentation of racial and ethnic groups, groups, in particular occupational families that face elevated exposure to current task automation. Hispanic workers, for example, account for 15.5% of the American labor force, yet they represent 32.6% of the people in the construction and extraction trades. It is projected that these are the kinds of jobs that can be easily automated. And so if you're over-concentrated in an area of work that's easily automated, that means it's going to impact that community more harsh. These jobs see about half of their current um, tasks automated by AI in this current era. By contrast, Hispanic workers perform less than 10% of the education or managerial jobs jobs less likely to be readily automated. Black workers, they have a slightly lower automation potential, and it's accounted for, however, because there's an overrepresentation of Blacks in the healthcare support, not doctors, but support, protective service and personal care services, jobs, again, which are going to be highly susceptible 
to being automated because their task force as opposed to having a lot of reliance on cognitive uh, educational development skills. Now, these demographic trends make plain the imperative to embrace proactive labor market interventions to assist workers in nimbly responding to any potential disruptive shifts in employment and demand for skills requirements. Otherwise, the promise of the AI era technology to drive future growth in American economy will be undermined by its potential to worsen existing inequalities on the basis of gender, age, educational attainment, and race. So I say once again, we adult villagers must tend to our children and our grandchildren's education, even if the state and the federal government want to distract us with anti-woke rhetoric and repositioning of educational resources in our local school boards. If we don't do this, we face economic discrimination, not only from the men in charge, but also from the new machines that these men are making to go after our jobs. So I have to tell you this. I'm very concerned of what I perceive as a nonfeasance of some of the self-appointed moral leaders of our villages who, in my opinion, are failing to honestly call balls and strikes about the moral questionable behavior of certain of our business and political leaders, including he who shall not be named, but who once lived in the White House and wants to live there again. Because he who shall not be named is putting religious conservatism uh, to the fore in our courts and every other place that you can find where people have authority. Now, just so you know where I'm coming from, I'm a person of faith and I'm a lawyer. And I want and believe that we all need to be have judges who are smart, who know and continue to, to study the law, who have the proper judicial temperament, and who will listen and analyze to an argument from all the various perspectives, and who have good reasoning skills, and who will render decisions based on the law and the facts, and no matter what her personal political or religious beliefs are concerned on a particular matter. Furthermore, in my opinion, judges who render decisions based on their personal, political, or religious beliefs about the parties, their counsel, or the subject matter given fail the system and do violence to our rule of law. Again, in my opinion, it takes good intellectual education, busters on strong moral foundation to make good people. And all people, good, bad, or indifferent, need role models who strive to exhibit both qualities. That is to say, intellectual and moral vitality and rigor, even if sometimes we fail miserably at both. And I include myself in a group that fails. But the difference is, I believe that you have to strive each day to redeem yourself and prove that you're worthy of being blessed with the intellect that God gave us, including me. So I'm just saying out there in to all of you out there in radio land, you need to focus on what we can do to educate our children about our history because it's a rudder 
for the future. You have to know where you've been to make sure you don't go back there again and you keep moving forward. So I'm going to leave it there for now. But as always in closing here on Tellman's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, man's law, as well as the center of the universe's law. And in order to do that, we have to be well-educated individuals in not only the spiritual world, but the secular world especially. And so that's what I'm focused on. So till next time, take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. 